Hi, everyone. This is Congress to Cubicle, a podcast where we look at the efficiency, effectiveness, and credibility of government. I'm your host, Steve Goodrich, the CEO of the Center for Organizational Excellence. Today, we're going to talk about budget reform in the federal government and what the budget process is like and some changes that need to be made to make it more efficient and effective for government. Today, my guest is Dan Chenick, the uh, executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. And glad to hear. So with budget reform, the first thing that comes to everybody's mind is Congress needs to pass a budget on time. But I also think that it's an elephant that everybody's touching and really doesn't understand that they're touching an elephant. What do you think of the major elements of budget reform? So having spent 14 years at OMB, Mm -hmm. um, I saw the budget from that side uh, and then teaching a little bit about the budget for the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, still come into contact with with the process and how it's evolving. And, and when people talk about reform, it's, it helps to sort of understand the basics of the process to start. Like, what are we reforming? So the administration puts together a budget based on what agencies request in the year before the budget submitted to Congress. So the administration goes through that process in one year. And then in, in, that happens in the summer and fall. Uh, and then the administration submits its request to Congress in the winter or when there's a change in administrations like this usually takes another couple of months. So it does, they do it in the spring. Then the Congress kind of reviews that. And in theory, um, on October 1 of the following year, so a year after the initial development of the budget, the Congress then enacts a set of appropriations laws mm-hmm. that implement those, that budget. Um, and then uh, those are carried out uh, the next year. And that three-year cycle kind of repeats itself. So you're always in one of the three years you're either in the year you're developing, the year you're talking to Congress about it, or the year you're implementing. And so they overlap. You're always working on a budget. That's right. You're always working on a budget. It's a full life cycle um, uh, activity. So there are a number of thoughts and the budgets, the last thing I'll say is that the budgets uh, go down to each agency, right? So there's an appropriations Mm -hmm. committee that usually has one, sometimes a few agencies that it's submitting budgets uh, to when the when the law is passed. Now, normally in the last 20 years, there's been very few years where most of the budgets have been passed on October 1. Most years they're actually delayed and there's a continuing resolution, which is basically continuing the spending level of the prior year. Uh, and then there's either a passage of individual appropriations laws or there is what's called an omnibus package, which is basically they all get rolled together uh, mm-hmm. into a package. And sometimes, many years, there's a mix. The defense budget will be approved by their appropriations committee, but a lot of the civilian agencies might be rolled into something that happens over the winter, that sort of thing. So it's a very, it's a process that's very well defined in in how it should work, but very differential in how it actually uh, gets implemented over time. And there's there's politics in there, right? Because the you know the, the president's budget is a proposed budget, and Congress will adopt, not adopt, make changes, hold hearings with agencies. That's right. And there's basically the president, then the next year, the president's budget adjusts for the baseline that the Congress enacted. So this is sort of a constantly moving discussion. So there's discussions about reform in a number of different areas. One is that this, this every year budget that gets developed two years ahead of when it's spent doesn't allow flexibility for adjustments, especially as the world is changing more rapidly because of technology, because of demographic shifts, because of shocks like 
COVID-19 being, being the large, most significant one in our generation, and the need to move more quickly. Um, you've seen that in some of the supplemental spending packages that were enacted last year to respond to COVID. And of course, the package that's being discussed now that was proposed by the Biden administration is. So there's, there's sort of how do you get money faster and how do you get it more flexibly so that you don't have some money that's sort of tied to a particular fiscal year? So if I was thinking two years ahead of time about the money that I'm going to be spending two years later, that money then has to normally, with a few exceptions, be spent in that year. Um, so I don't really have as much flexibility to adjust over time to move money into a new, uh, a new direction based on new issues that might come up in that year. And so what happens is the administration kind of adjusts its spending mid-course and often talks to Congress about reprogramming. Uh, and that sort of thing. So there's just a lot of process brought into play when there is a, a need to change the budget. There's other complexities in there too, right? Because there's no year money, there's mm -hmm. revolving funds that agencies have more discretion over, so forth and so on. Right. So there's lots of different colors of money. Mm -hmm. When can it be spent? Um, under what rules? That sort of thing. Uh, how does it get spent in terms of salaries and expenses and contracts and that sort of thing? Some people advocate for a multi-year budget to provide more flexibility. So you don't have to go back to Congress every year with the full budget request. Maybe you submit a budget that this is most commonly presented as a biennial budget, meaning every two years, uh -huh. and you submit the full budget to Congress in, in one year. And then the next year you kind of give, have a discussion about updates. It's a tremendous amount of work from the agencies to OMB, to uh -huh. the congressional appropriations and authorizing staffs. Uh, to all the people uh, like us on the outside that follow the budget. There's just a lot of process work that goes into a budget. So this, this category of reforms would basically say, let's, let's try to elongate the budget process a little bit, take it out of the annual cycle and, and try to focus more on strategic priorities. Uh -huh. There's another set of reforms that probably got started a little bit in the, in the second Bush administration when I was still at OMB and has been talked about since, which is more of a cross-agency, cross-program budgeting. Uh -huh. um, this sometimes is referred to as in, in terms of performance budgeting, where you think about what are the functions of government that cut across agencies, like environmental protection, isn't just about EPA. It's about uh -huh. the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Energy, um, even the Defense Department gets gets uh, involved in substance in abuse, mental health crosses agencies. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely yeah. And so there's there are cross cuts, and and they're sort of they're done sort of post budget that where you collect all these monies and analyze how they work together. Some budget reformers who are talking about let's think about how to budget for cross cutting programs and then tie those back to agencies. Uh -huh. Now, this is a more radical shift than a biennial budget would be because it, it would necessitate a sort of a change or a different mode of operating from the appropriations committees who tend to work, as I said before, in these sort of silos back, back to their agencies. Um, but there's been some discussion over time about the budget committee, then the full appropriations committee, since they have the whole of government in their scope of being able to possibly in, their, in the budget resolution put together some cross-agency targets for these kinds of, of strategic investment uh, areas. And that's not something that's been done a lot at the federal level. It's, it's, I think it's been done more at the state level where governors have a little more flexibility in some states to work in the budget, but th that's you, another. You think things, some things like the Modernization Act helps that give some flexibility? It still requires approval and so yeah, so the Technology Modernization Fund uh, that came out of the Modernizing Government Technology Act is a good example. For the most part, that fund is still operates at an agency level, 
um, but it has the flexibility to operate at a cross-agency level as well. So that's a, a good platform to understand sort of how this could be could be done because it gives some flexibility. Part of the concern, of course, of, of congressional staff is the visibility that they have into the spending out of that fund. And uh, as, as many people have observed, the Biden administration proposed a $9 billion, $9.2 billion, I think, a dollar increment uh, for that fund, which has been mostly funded at about $100 million uh, thus far, maybe $150 million altogether. And so that's a large uh, increase. And part of the thinking is, as you think about this greater flexibility that this type of budgeting vehicle could provide, how do you then um, uh, establish a process and, and visibility to ensure that congressional staff and ultimately taxpayers understand that that money is being well spent? Uh, you know, in some of my conversations on the Hill and comparing that within agencies, obviously agencies want more flexibility to address the program needs. And, and during any one fiscal year, I need a little bit more over here, a little bit less over there and, and want the flexibility to do that. There's some, even at OMB that I talked to and, and on the Hill of, they don't use these words, but we don't want to lose control, right, of, of those funds. And therefore, we, we want to kind of strap down a little bit with the agencies. But it, and when things like COVID come, comes up, obviously, agencies need to divert funds and, and make changes to their plans, as well as their programmatic plans. Yeah. And a good example of this sort of from a more structural perspective is the, in the defense area, there's something called the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, or OCO, which is basically a fund where you can provide funding for needs of our global defense uh, capabilities. And, and that's done sort of separately from individual program lines to the Defense Department as well. There are models, and they're also one of the features of the Technology Modernization Fund, which is another category of reform, is the concept of repayment. In a typical, you think about an appropriation, the, the money goes out um, and it gets spent on activities and then the taxpayers are paying to, to get benefit. In the Tech Modernization Fund, and there are other models like this, the agency would repay because it's getting greater efficiency from the investment. Um, and an example of this in the acquisition space in the Department of Energy are energy savings performance contracts where instead of sort of putting all the money out, out front, a company could work with an agency to say, you're paying, just to make the math easy, $1,000 on energy now through some technology changes and sort of building modifications, we can help you to only pay $600. Um, you know, and they do a contract where of that $400 savings, you know, the company keeps 100 and the government gets to save 300 or something like that. It's much more complicated, but to illustrate the impact. And so the flexibility in budgeting can extend to flexibility in how the government then spends those dollars in a procurement setting to enable companies to invest in, the gov in, in government needs and help government modernize without necessarily having to have all of the money up front. This was a, a topic that we looked at in our center uh, a little over a year ago in a report that was written by several former OMB executives around sort of strategies to improve the budget process, reform the budget process, and the acquisition process to incentivize more private sector investment in government at a time when, of course, we do have constrained resources. I was talking recently to a CFO who wants to, at a granular level, modernize their function within the agency realize some cost savings, but want to be able to reuse those cost savings and apply it to other things. Under the current structure, budget structure, they can't. But they're looking for ways, even agencies, not just performance sharing with contractors, but uh, sharing within the agency itself sure. mm -hmm. and creating yep. benefits there. 
private sector companies often sort of track these expenses. There's, there's a discipline called technology business management, which the U.S. government started to adopt a few years ago and is, is still kind of growing in its, in its understanding where you can track uh, technology savings across accounts and across years, and you use sort of financial data to help do that. So there's, there's some promise in some, some techniques that, that can allow uh, uh, for that kind of investment. Let's dip down another level within agencies around working capital, capital investment funds, things like that. I find within agencies, for example, with capital investment, everybody has a structure, but nobody funds capital investment until they have a need. What's Congress's view on that? And how can agencies actually do better on preparing for the future, whether it's uh, physical facility needs or laboratory needs or weapon needs or whatever it may be? Yeah, well, capital programming is something that is built into the budget process. It's more commonly done for investments in things like fleet and buildings. It can be applied uh, in, to technology funding and has been done through uh, the capital planning process to varying degrees over the last uh, couple of decades. So there, there is some experience to draw on. I think it's more one of the private sector techniques that might be appropriate for government. And, and it's sort of taking hold a little bit in some of the agencies that have work on that's being done by the digital service teams or by chief innovation officers. Mm-hmm is to kind of think about investment funds in two, capital investment funds in two buckets. One is the upfront experimentation prototyping. You know, how do you, how do you figure out what works best? Uh-huh. And that, that money tends to be higher risk. Companies can't really estimate their cost into a fixed price contract for that. It's hard to think about how that funding kind of fits into a, a regular stream for a working capital fund. Uh-huh. And so you might think about sort of a more risk-based contract mechanism and risk-based budgeting in terms of that part of the money, which is going to be a smaller portion of the overall capital budget. Then once you know sort of what you're doing, you can learn from the development fund, if you will, to create budget rules and contracts for larger scale operations that are more in the the traditional sense. You could even think about those in a firm fixed price contract type of of mechanism because there's more certainty, there's more known about how the operation will will occur. Right now, they tend to get mixed. You you tend to have a contract that gets awarded and the prototyping is done and then they go into scale and things get learned that companies didn't know about when the first contract was first awarded or, or government. So they have to go back and do a, a budget plus up to get more money for the contract. This would enable the government to do a little bit more of a risk in, risk investment por- portfolio uh-huh. for their work up front and have more certainty so they had fewer cost overruns uh, in the back end for the larger amount of the operation. Well, risk portfolios, risk sharing is something that's always been difficult for government. The private sector does it better, but even the private sector contractors don't always want to jump into it unless the government's also sharing part of that risk. Yeah, there's been examples. They're, they're more at the state and local level mm-hmm. where you can set up public-private partnerships and multi-sector partnerships and, and allocate risk across the parties um, for things like roads and bridges. There, there was a, a provision to do this under the e-government act of 2002 do these share and savings contracts and then tie those back into the into how agencies are budgeting uh, for those contracts it was never implemented because of some technical reasons that would probably take us a lot longer to explain now but it, they did actually develop rules of spending there, there, and there actually was a contract that was done prior to that that modernized the student financial aid technology systems 
that was a gain share sort of risk allocation, risk share contract between the Department of Education and a private sector partner. And that was done uh, reasonably successful. You know, OPM did that, did that a few years ago with the combined federal campaign, actually. So they outsourced all the technology and the contractor would essentially get a piece of each donation as it came in to run their operation. They had to be very uh, transparent in their cost and their cost structure and their profitability and so forth and so on. But it was absolutely a sharing type mechanism and it allowed OPM not to use operating costs associated with it. So it became a win-win for both. Yeah. Other examples are in the fraud, waste and abuse category. Mm-hmm. If a company can come in and show that you're paying out you know, $10 million more than, than are uh, allowed and you're going to the wrong recipients and through some data analytic, you know, we can help you pay the right amount to the right people and it's going to be, that amount will be reduced. Then part of that savings can come back to the company that works with the government to, uh, to think about the process and technology and data reforms that are needed to do that. Do you think the government ha- struggles with working capital funds and, you know, revolving funds and things like that? You know, I, what, what I tend to hear from OMB and, and Congress is, you know, we never know what goes on with those funds and we want more insight into it. And agencies, um, I think for the most part, use it responsibly and legally. But, you know, sometimes I hear, well, that's a source of funding. If we want to do this project over here, you know, we'll make it work. Um, yeah, no, I've heard that criticism has been around for decades. And, and when I was at OMD, I saw some fund use in that direction as well. Um, I would say that uh, leading agencies with um, CFOs that kind of understand how to uh, properly set up a working capital fund do so because they establish some understood rules of the road that their employees and their partners who do work uh, under funds coming from the working capital fund understand, and that there's transparency in the spend so that OMB and, and Congress sort of understand, you know, here's the the funds that are going into the working capital fund, sometimes they're coming from user fee-based programs. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they're coming from things like the savings that we're describing that can then get put into the working capital fund. IAAs um, between agencies. Yeah. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, transfer of funds under the Economy Act mm-hmm. can go into these types of funds. Or franchise funds are sometimes called. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as you and I have uh, worked on a, a lot over the last few years, that they often support shared services uh, mm-hmm. activities. Uh, across agencies where agencies are receiving mission support services like financial management or human resources from another agency that, that does it really well. So th- that transparency and that process can, can set apart a working capital fund from the ones where they say, well, it's just a big pot of money that we re- don't really know what, what goes on with it. You know, Dan, if you were, you know, king for a day, what, what were the top three things you'd want to fix? I would say more flexibility across years uh, in terms of spend with transparency so that the, that, um, the public and uh, congressional oversight OMB understands sort of what's happening. More flexibility across accounts for uh, agencies that are spending money on similar programs, it might be shared services, it might be common mission programs like the ones we're describing. And I would say the ability to really do some innovation investment with in, in, the, in the ways that we've discussed here around setting up sort of a, a, a risk, if you will, a riskier portfolio up front to find out what works, allow projects to fail without losing a lot of money, and then being able to invest and attract private sector investment in those innovations through funding structures like working capital funds that allow repayment uh, based on savings and share and savings type contracts. Some of that almost sounds like it's going to take some legislation <laughs> to do. Mm-hmm. 
some regulation, but also training needed not only in the various budget offices, but almost in the program offices as well. So these program managers really have a strong handle on what they can do, what they can't do, where their flexibilities lie, what they need, and having giving them an opportunity to actually express how these flexibilities will actually help the government. Yeah, I think your last point is, is a key one. This is not about process reform for its own sake. Uh-huh. This is about directing taxpayer dollars on the government to provide outcomes that will be more meaningful for citizens and for the for state and local governments and across the nation. Right now, you get, especially at the like, partnership levels at the local government level, for example, you get some frustrations about how, how the money is, is inflexible when they receive it. These types of reforms can, can really support directing money more effectively to, to achieving mission outcomes for the American people. Uh, back a few years ago, I was talking to a couple states who, was, who were receiving federal funds for government programs, and neither one of them could use the funds because the way it was earmarked in conjunction with what their need was. And they go back to the feds and say, I, thanks for the money, but I can't use it. And they said, but the legislation is such that I can't change it and you can't give it back. So, you know, they had X millions of dollars sitting there and nobody could do anything with it uh, without a piece of legislation. So there's granular things that can be improved, uh, you know. There are. And some of this can be done within current uh, authorities. And there's definitely on the contracting side, there's definitely contract flexibilities that OFPP uh, has been working on. So yes, you're right that some of the broader, grander schemes that we've been talking about will, would require legislation, but um, multiple administrations have have shown that you can you can get started with some experimentation to show show that these kinds of models what what works and what what can be improved. One last thing, we we, we talked a lot about uh, appropriation committees and and certainly their big role in in all of this. But we also have OMB and oversight committees as well. Where, where can they play in helping the reform? Yeah, it's really all three. I mean, uh, you know, OMB can, can help by organizing agency priorities around sort of key goals of, of, the, of the current administration. And those clearly have been laid out by President Biden for, for the next year uh, in terms of the package that, that's before the Hill now. Um, the authorizing committees are obviously the the key partners in sort of understanding what's happening in the programs that are that are in the different agencies and, wow. and coming together, for example, uh, the, the authorized committees, the, the Government Reform Committee in the House and the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee in the Senate, which have those government-wide scopes, uh-huh. can help to basically uh, bring together some of these some of these ideas in terms of reform. And then, of course, uh, together working with the appropriations committees, it would it would create a, a strong a group in favor um, if, if there's a way to sort of demonstrate that these types of, of reforms uh, really do have benefit for, for the work they do and, and wouldn't take away from the work that they're currently overseeing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a real advocate for collaborating between the legislative and executive branches. And I've, in my book, I called for a national strategic plan, which would allow them to start wrestling with not just the programmatic issues, but but these, you know, what I'll call mission support needs, whether it's budget or human capital or whatever it happens to be, you know, certainly to help them help them get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dan, I appreciate our time. Everybody, Dan Chenick, the executive director of the IBM Center for Business and Government. Thanks for being here today, Dan. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for watching our podcast, Congress to Cubicle. This ends our season one, where we look at the efficiency, effectiveness, and credibility of government. 
Next up in season two, we'll be looking at the administration imperatives. You won't want to miss that. You can check out any of our podcast episodes by going to centerforoe.com, checking out our YouTube channel, or going to any of the major podcast outlets. Looking forward to seeing you in season two. 